0: This morning we have the great privilege of examining a little bit of the tail end of Isaiah 52, but as our Old Testament reading was read to us, it's the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. For the most part, the book of Isaiah up to chapter 39 has dealt with judgment. The theme has been judgment, the judgment of the nations surrounding Israel and Judah, but also a word of judgment to both Israel and Judah. A word of impending threat from both Assyria and then Babylon and And we get up to chapter 40, the mood begins to change as God speaks about a servant. Not just any servant, but his servant. At first, he's talking about Israel, his people Israel, called to be his servant, the servant of God. But those people have failed miserably. And we see towards chapters 44 and 45, another servant seems to appear. Cyrus, the king of Persia, the one who will bring back or at least issue the decree... For the people of God to return from Babylon, to come back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. But with Cyrus, we see that he was an utter pagan. And throughout these chapters, one gains the understanding that, as Derek Thomas put it, it's one thing to get God's people out of Babylon, and another thing to get Babylon out of God's people. It's one thing, he says, to get the people of God out of the place of idolatry, but another thing to get idolatry out of the hearts of God's people. Thus, we see that another servant is needed. An altogether servant, one whose heart is set to serve the Lord. One New Testament scholar says that no other passage from the Old Testament was as important to the church as that of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Of its 12 verses, 8 are quoted in the New Testament in reference to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, of his coming, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension. Furthermore, apart from verse 2, every other verse of Isaiah 53 can be found in the New Testament. So the five stanzas before us this morning will find the servant at the outset pictured as priest, and the sprinkling of the unclean. And in the heart of the passage spoken of is an offering for guilt, you see, what Isaiah is doing here is he's answering the question, how can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? If God is truly the Holy One of Israel and his people are utterly sinful, thus totally deserving of his just judgment, how can a holy God pour out his blessing on such a people? We'll seek to answer that question this morning as we look at the success, the shunning, the significance the suffering, and lastly, the satisfaction of the servant. But before we do that, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Please pray with me. Fathers, we now give attention to your word. We pray that you open our eyes, that we might behold the wonderful things from your law through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Those of you with children, as parents, I have a couple kids myself. We want our children to live lives marked with integrity, with hope, with courage, with compassion, with wisdom. You could probably keep going, right? We might be here all day of the things that we want our children to be. Ultimately, lives that I think we could all agree on bring honor and glory to Christ. And if it just so happens to be in a safe and comfortable environment, we're not going to complain, right? Yet it is precisely the suffering of the second person of the Trinity of God the Son from the cradle to the cross that God the Father uses to bring about his glory and the salvation of billions. It's the suffering of the just that justifies the unjust. Jesus walked on water... But the greatest miracle of all isn't the parting of the Red Sea. It's not the virgin birth. The greatest miracle of all is actually found in verse 5 of the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans where the apostle says that God justifies the ungodly. That God declares guilty people innocent. Romans 3 verse 19 reminds us that our real problem is objective moral guilt before God. It's always someone else's fault because we can't bear our own guilt and therefore want so desperately for others, for someone, anyone probably, to bear it for us. Well, someone has, and the way God has chosen to relate guilty people or to release guilty people is through his servant, who as the ESV translates in chapter 52 of Isaiah verse 13, that servant acts wisely. Jesus says, all of your guilt must come to him, and all of your righteousness, therefore, must come from him. Not through self-love, but through the redemptive release offered through the suffering servant. So our first point this morning deals not with the sufferings of Christ, but with the success of Christ's work. Because we know that this side of Calvary, his work was successful. He did succeed. So please, if you have your Bibles open, look with me, these last three verses of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Jesus knew what he had to do to achieve his purpose. And we see that it worked. In verse 13, we see God declare the victory of his son. He shall be exalted. He shall be extolled and be very high. His mission will be accomplished. His work will not fail. The son accomplishes his father's plan. And God here says, as one Old Testament scholar translates, My servant shall prosper. God says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall act wisely. He shall prosper. He shall succeed. And this truth should fill us this morning with overwhelming joy as we're reminded that Jesus' mission has not been derailed. My servant will succeed. It's as if he's saying, you hear me? He will succeed. He rose from the dead. He was lifted up to the right hand of the Father. And there he reigns on high with all power and all authority. Here Isaiah is also connecting how repulsive Jesus became in his suffering for us with how effective he is in purifying us. They treated Christ as they treated no other man. The servant's sufferings brought such a disfigurement that one commentator wrote that those who saw him said, not only is this he, But they went further and they said, is he human? Our text says that his visage, those noticeable or distinguishing features of one's face. They said that it was marred. Not for nothing, though. As another commentator concludes, but in a paradox worthy of God, it was his extreme suffering that measures his extreme power to cleanse us. While repulsive, so disfigured they they couldn't even tell if it was human. While repulsive, Jesus was redemptive. Those within sight of the cross were left speechless at the disfigured flesh. Yet there is Jesus Christ, God's Son, his servant. Behold, we're told, my servant shall prosper. And as we read that passage, it's possible some of you, maybe one of you, have asked, how exactly is this serving God? How is this part of God's plan? How will he prosper? We look no further than verse 15 as it tells us that he will sprinkle many nations. And this answers our question. Here's our why. Why does Jesus do what he does? And why does he endure what he endures? its sacrificial language, its atonement language, drawn from the rites of Old, Te- Old Testament temple worship, as many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. When a leper was cleansed, for example, a priest sprinkled blood on him to show that his disease was washed away and that he was, he was now healthy. He was now ready to be accepted back into the community. Levit- Leviticus 14, 7 reads, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him, who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. This is what's happening here we see at the cross. Herein lies the wisdom of God that one regarded as unclean is indeed the very one who will cleanse others, whose blood is pure and lavish enough to cleanse not just a nation, but many nations, we're told. Christ died to sprinkle those many nations, and in doing so, that such blessed results of cleansing and atonement can somehow follow tortured suffering is exactly what makes kings shut their mouths. The truth is, as difficult as it is to grasp when pictured with that reality, it's the only way, this is the only way, that lepers like us are healed. The remedy for human misery isn't found through worldly prescriptions, But in the undeserved sufferings of Jesus Christ, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And yet to this day, somehow the world still struggles to believe his message. The servant was successful. He succeeded. Our next point is the servant was shunned. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Isaiah asks, if anyone believes the message he and other Israelites have been preaching who here has believed our report? We shift immediately from the absolute victory in Christ to a more solemn tone, expressing that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. From victory to when is that day? And as he surveys the current landscape, wondering who's believed their reports. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, Isaiah is left grieved by humanity's unbelief. And the reality is, is that our Lord simply wasn't special or impressive in the ways that matter to the world. The world's vantage point is no higher than the surface. Which when described by Isaiah as someone who has no form or comeliness. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, in fact, became so hideous in his sufferings that Isaiah tells us people actually hid their faces from him. We also see in Mark 3 and John 7 that his own family misjudged him, that his appearance was so unassuming, the woman at the well had no idea who she was talking to. And even John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus in the River Jordan, who leaped for joy while still in his mother Elizabeth's womb as she heard the voice of Jesus' mother Mary. This John, in a moment of weakness, had second thoughts and doubted while imprisoned as we see him in Luke 7, sending two messengers to Jesus, raising the question, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Even the man who baptized our Christ doubted. The servant of the Lord sunk low enough to the point of rejection, And doubt by the very ones he came to save. Because in order for us to become like him, he had to become like us. Going quickly back to John, I want us to notice how Jesus answers his questions. Again, if your Bible's open, just a little bit of turning. I'm going to go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Luke seven twenty two and 23. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We too, as did John the Baptist, as did Jeremiah, as did Elijah, as did Jonah we too will have our moments of doubt and times of distress. And in those moments, the solution to our doubts isn't to question if he can be trusted or not when pain arises. Do we trust in Jesus? When life gets hard, where does our trust lie? Jesus sunk so low so that when you're at your lowest, you can cling to the hope found in the only one who's been lower. Do you believe that? Is that where your hope lies? There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one who's given an atonement. Only Jesus has been raised and elevated to the right hand of God the Father where he sits right now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There isn't another who can do what Jesus has done for you. And that's our solution is found in noticing through Jesus' patient reply to John that he was fulfilling the Messiah's prophecy from Isaiah 61 to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. He said, you know who I am. You know what the prophecy says. And I've done these miracles, but I'm also doing what they said I'd do. Preaching good news to the poor, liberty to the captives. It is me. He was successful, he was shunned, but he was also significant, our servant was. That's our third point. Isaiah 53, verse 4, 5, and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah now brings us to the heart of his message in verses four through six, that Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but those sorrows weren't his own. Jesus didn't deserve his sorrows because they were our sorrows, weren't they? God has done what we had no right to do, shift the blame to Jesus as he died for guilty people. God has pointed the finger, and he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Derek Thomas comments here, as perhaps nowhere else in the Old Testament, we see Calvary most plainly disclosed. While stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, the servant was at the same time taking upon himself himself. The misery of sin's curse. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Deuteronomy 21:23 declares that everyone who is hanged upon a tree is cursed by God. It reads, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, for he who is hanged is a curse by God. And there between two criminals, those in attendance, could only believe that God had indeed deserted and condemned the servant. And so he had, right? but not for any sin of his own. Isaiah tells us that it was our grief and it was our sorrows that he bore there on the cross. And the verb he uses here means to lift up off someone else, to bear the weight instead of them. So the servant quite literally carried the burden of the crushing weight of our sin. Guilt simply must be paid for. It can't just be swept under the rug. And like someone who gets in a car wreck, either you or the other driver, one of you has to pay the cost for the damage. And this too is the case with God. Yet out of love, God charged that debt to a substitute, didn't he? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The iniquity, Isaiah tells us, of us all was laid upon the servant because we have turned everyone to his own way. We wonder because sin, and that's with an A, we wonder because of sin, at its core, is rebellious. It's independent. It's self-sufficient. It tells us that we know best and that despite what God's word says, we still have somewhat of control. So we turn to our ways. And we end up in the middle of picture a corn maze. You can't run through it, you can't climb over it. We're totally and therefore completely lost. And this is where you find yourself if you are not in Christ. But you're not left without hope, because there's good news. And that good news is that the Lord has laid upon the Son the iniquity of us all. The servant is your substitute. The servant bears your penalty. The servant ultimately atones for your sin. So this is your hope is that you don't have to look to something else. You look to him and you look at what God has done. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Sin kills, it destroys, it condemns, and only Jesus saves. That's what the gospel offers. Isaiah then moves in verses 7 through 9 from implications of Christ's work for those in Christ to the events themselves. We now see the servant suffering. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and all, or who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. And here we're we're made eyewitnesses at the trial and execution of Jesus of Nazareth. And what are we left with? What are we seeing? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But what did he not do? He didn't open his mouth. Falsely accused rather than defending himself. Jesus humbly Quietly submitted to the suffering like a sheep to the shear, like a lamb to the slaughter. No finger pointing, no pouting. It wasn't me, it was her. No deflecting, only total and deliberate submission. And by oppression and judgment, he was taking away. Mark 15:15 15, 15 reads, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. To the crowd, he was just another execution. Despite the five confessions in Luke 23 of Jesus' total innocence, he's sentenced to a criminal's death by crucifixion. And although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. In both his actions and his words, he died in entire innocence. The wicked make his grave. First Peter two twenty three and 24 reads, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And yet it pleased the Lord, we see, continuing through Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we've examined so far how the servant succeeded. We saw how he was shunned. We saw what made him significant. And we watched him suffer. And lastly, this morning, our fifth and final point is we get to see that the servant also satisfied. Crushed he was, while also victorious. Like a guilt offering, the servant's death provides perfect satisfaction for sin. And in verse 10, we see that it pleased the Lord to crush his son and put him to grief. Michael Horton wrote, Christ is our priestly savior by offering both the lifelong living sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and by offering himself as the guilt sacrifice for our sins, he was not only sinless but righteous, not only a not transgressor of the law, but the joyful fulfiller of all righteousness. It was the will of the father to crush him and the love of the father to send him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us, and as he surveys his work, he's satisfied. Looking on what he accomplished, Christ is satisfied, and in turn, even though you nor I are righteous, we are brought into a right relationship with God as we wear the righteousness of the servant, the mediator, the God child born in the city of David who is Christ the Lord. Christ, the servant, friends, died that you may live. He accounted the many righteous, and now the many, those for whom he died, the many become his reward. And nothing will ever rob Christ of his hard-won right to his reward, his hard-won right to justify the ungodly. Friends, Jesus says that you are a source of satisfaction to his heart. We've seen this morning that he bought and paid for you, that you are his and that he delights in you. Further, that he is satisfied by the salvation that his wounds have won for you. In the gospel, God gives you to Jesus as his reward. So when you see yourself in the mirror, do you see yourself as he sees you as a reward? As his joy, you are his glory. The Father is satisfied in Jesus. Christ is satisfied in his work. And for the believer, for you and me, every need of yours may be satisfied in Christ as well. This is what we have to cling to. If God is satisfied in Jesus, are you prepared then to look to Jesus for the satisfaction that when doubts arise... Your heart longs for. The gospel invites you. In all your guilt. To rest in the finished work. Of the once for all supreme servant. The only way to be freed from your guilt. From your pain. From your past. From your fear. From your doubt. We know the way don't we? The only way is through the cross. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live. Friends, Isaiah helps us to see that we are to stop running. We're to stop making excuses. We're to stop finger pointing. We're to stop playing victim. He says, you know the way to refreshment. He instructs us, therefore, to take our sins to Christ As we've seen this morning, he shows us that in his suffering, in his success, in his shunning, in his significance. That he is all we need and therefore we are to come to him. Please pray with me. Father, help us to revere Christ. Christ. Forgive us for seeking our satisfaction in the junk food of a broken world that on occasion appeases our appetites only to leave us hungrier. Our appetites are never fully satisfied. Bring us to Christ, Father, with whom you are satisfied, that in him we too may find true satisfaction. O oh, Lord, please make this servant your son our Savior. Make Jesus our all in all. For his sake we do pray this in his name. Amen.